Welcome to Notice That, an EMDR podcast. Here, you will find discussion on all things EMDR from MDR-approved trainers and consultants, as well as some co-hosts. EMDR is an approach to the entire therapeutic journey, not just reprocessing trauma. This podcast will feature discussion on the therapeutic relationship, understanding and using the original eight-phase protocol, and what to do to bring deeper understanding to the why behind EMDR and what to do when you're stuck. This podcast is an invitation to connect and learn together about EMDR and the process of psychotherapy. We are glad that you're here. Thanks for checking out this podcast. Notice That is a project of Think Beyond a listener-funded media house focused on connecting humans through therapy and art. To keep this podcast going, we'd love for you to support us on Patreon by searching patreon.com slash thinkbeyondhealing in your favorite web browser. And don't forget to check out our new merch by going to our website at connectbeyondhealing.com and clicking on the merchandise tab. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to Notice That, an EMDR podcast. Jen, Melissa, and I are here or there in virtual studios. Everywhere. <laughs> there and everywhere. <laughs> yes. Um, but to pick back up on our uh, journey through Francine Shapiro's uh, eye movement desensitization and reprocessing therapy textbook or manual. When's the last time you said it like that, like not was, just the acronym. Especially that slowly, probably like five years. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Seriously. Because if I do say it all, it's like eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. <laughs> the yeah, world that world. was impressive mm-hmm. that you just did that without twisting <laughs> the words at all. I don't know if you know this about me, Jen, but words are, are Very pretty important. particular about words. <laughs> yes, I do. Yeah. I see syllables in my head as I'm speaking, so. That's interesting. We could dig into that. Separate conversation. Yeah. Anyway, um, chapter four, uh, page 97, um, if you want to turn there. (laughs) Um, but in in the latest edition. If you're in the old edition, it would be page 104. Oh. Look at you. I'm working with. The section that we're moving into is treatment planning. Treatment Mm. planning. Mm Which is interesting. It's like um, a few pages. There's a script in there, but minus the script, we're really working with like a couple of pages. Mm-hmm. And that just feels like incredibly underwhelming <laughs> for that topic. <laughs> it is a big topic to be covered in just a handful of pages. Yeah. There's I, so much to put there. Well, yeah, I don't know. What does that mean to you, Jen? Like the page number? I know, Melissa, you just said it. That's a lot of information to pack in a couple pages, but why does that why does that matter? I think maybe the, the experience of practicing and then consulting, it's one of the main areas that people feel the most insecure or unsupported mm-hmm. in. Of like I either do it in this one standard way that I was taught by my trainer or I don't know what else, like how else to do treatment planning with EMDR in more complex, creative ways. Um, I think there's just so much to it. It's hard to imagine that it could be covered in such a small section because it can't be. It really has to, I think, unfold experientially and maybe through a longer process of training and learning. Yeah. The way you brought that up and I think the way you shared what is so explicit for us at beyond and the way we do training and certification, I think it's a totally true. Like history taking doesn't even make sense to put in just a beginning phase of our approach because of somatic integration and processing, like our, our case conceptualization model, it's everywhere for us. Like history is always happening in the present and, and in the future, but the way that she lays it out in the text, to me, it does make sense of why it would be stated in the way that it is because it's almost like a it's not the main thing mm-hmm. in a in a way where i yeah. feel like for us it definitely is but i think that's one of the maybe the translations that comes up when we 
come to EMDR and people come to our certification groups because mm-hmm. it's like history is so important. And when they reflect back on their training, it's the equivalent of like six pages. Yeah. Well, and I, I sort of have the sense that part of why it feels so brief to us is the shift from considering EMDR a modality that is really mostly focused on something like simple or single incident trauma. And all of us rarely use it that way. We certainly can, but most of our work is looking at much more complex situations. And, um, you know, even when I think about the amount of history that is required to deeply understand um, a personality situation that somebody might come in with of, you know, why am I anxious all the time? Why am I struggling with depression for the last decade? The amount of history that is needed and the different kinds of history that's needed is totally different than if somebody comes in and says, you know, I have this phobia or this, you know, single incident kind of situation. And so I think because of Francine's tendency to really see EMDR as something that was uh, good in its simplicity, right? That it really was kind of billed as this like very simple, straightforward, streamlined way of working. And we don't actually see the value of EMDR as being fast and streamlined. Um, And so to me, I think that is mostly what's reflected here is that there's this sense of like, look at how fast you can do this and look at how simple it can be because that really was what was valued at that point. Hearing you kind of like talk through that made me think of a couple of trainings, like the training that we were Mm -hmm. trained to teach and then being exposed to different trainers' ways of teaching EMDR basic. This is an area where our trainers get a lot of um, space to be kind of creative Mm -hmm. and add their own pieces to it, like in the expectations of like writing a training. And so it's interesting. And I don't know, you know, Shapiro's intention in it or what, but I, I wonder if there's just these very basic fundamental guidelines to treatment planning with the understanding that like there's going to have to be some degree of our own mm-hmm. like clinical mm-hmm. application of like how do we go about mm-hmm. collecting history, conceptualizing cases, and then building a plan around it. And I think she does outline nicely some important things to be like considering, but treatment planning is one of those like every trainer has such a unique take on this is how you do it. Mm -hmm. Um, This Mm -hmm. is a way in which you're going to build your plan for applying this approach. Yeah. I I mean, it's a little later in the chapter, but I think it's so fitting uh, with what you're saying, Jen. Um, The first paragraph of summary and conclusions Mm -hmm. in this section is, I feel like it just really highlights what the stance was right like what is the attitude and i'll I'll just read little bits of it i won't read the whole thing but you know emdr is highly interactive demands sensitivity and flexibility it's essential that we select clients properly because of the nature of unresolved associated material and she goes on to say that the the clients need to be selected based on sufficient stability appropriate life conditions to handle all possible ab reaction responses and any distressing affect that may arise in session. And like that I I don't know how you guys react to that, but I I don't think that there are very many situations where um we are not having to do this as we go rather than controlling it all on the front end. And there's sort of this feeling in this chapter of like, oh, we're gonna be able to make sure that all of this is managed before we begin. And we approach it as, you know, we'll discover and manage it along the way. Mm -hmm. And that's why history taking has to be this rolling thing and the treatment plan is ever evolving Um, because we don't only select clients for EMDR that are perfectly stable. (laughs) We can handle all affect states. (laughs) In in, uh, my groups, one of the things that I consistently talk about is that we have to name the implicit assumptions of EMDR mm-hmm. before we can really even understand what the basic training was trying to tell us. And Melissa, you just read 
you just read one in effect, which is that mm-hmm. EMDR is built for those fit for inclusion. And you just read some of the inclusion characteristics that would make somebody it's very narrow a fit. Yeah, exactly. It's incredibly narrow, almost to the degree that it's unrealistic for mm-hmm. a majority of the presentations that we actually see. And so right. within that, the way I work with it is we need to understand like what our goals are. <laughs> I mean, for the client, is this something that you want to feel different about or do you want to be different um, because that's going to take us down very different roads for some clients coming in. I just want this situation to feel better. I want to be mm-hmm. able to drive my car again after the accident that I had. That's totally doable in a more mm-hmm. acute, uh, kind of treatment focus where, yeah, we're going to desensitize and reprocess that initial memory. But if you've done that before with that case, you can see that at many points along the way, it'll open up to more characterological concerns that Mm -hmm. the car accident uncovered, which is why it bothers them so deeply in the first place. Like, sure, I'm scared that some other driver is going to hit me. But what if I'm also afraid based on that initial experience that maybe I'm actually out of control of my life Mm -hmm. and that I don't have people around me that are going to support me if bad things happen, or maybe I'm going to fail and that means nobody will love me. Like right. that's going to take some different <laughs> skills from the therapist, depending on what resources and time you have to work yeah. with in the session. Is it going to be possible for us to get to those places or do we need to name? There's going to be threads that go back farther than this, but if we've got six sessions to help you with this car accident, maybe that's what we're here to do today and naming and containing what might be done later. Most when you started reading that paragraph and I heard the words EMDR is a highly interactive therapeutic approach and demands clinician sensitivity and flexibility. I started flipping like, where in this text is this? (laughs) Because that I feel like is so lost Uh in the way uh, it's maybe trained in the way that... um, trainees come out believing mm-hmm. like it's no like mm-hmm. i talk to them every day literally new consultants every yeah. day yeah. who are so afraid to be highly interactive they're so afraid to do that it's like no i'm supposed to stay out of the way i don't know should i say that am i supposed to do that am i not they're so afraid to be really flexible mm-hmm. no what is it that i'm supposed to do mm-hmm. and what's the guideline in this and so like when he's i'm like that does not that really, and I think it's interesting. In there? Yeah, yes. where and, was that? And I, I think that's like, you know, part of the way that Francine's message like got lost and twisted in the many iterations of translation and, and training. You know, on one hand, there is this militancy around scripts and protocols, and we have to do it this way. Um, but when you really read her original text, she presents the the scripted version and the simple version because she can't present every corner case and every yeah. variation. But in every single chapter, and if, if you just read the summary and conclusions in almost every chapter, there yeah. is a really clear theme. She makes mm-hmm. a statement like that almost every single chapter. There's caveats everywhere. Yes. Yeah. yeah, we will we will have to adapt. It's our job as a clinician to bend and to know mm-hmm. when to uh, deviate. You have to get extra help with deviation. I mean, that paragraph is on the heels of Everything. imploring people to get supervision <laughs> yeah. to help them make clinical decisions. And I think that what is happening culturally um, in our you know, therapy communities is that we have put modalities above the practitioner. And I don't think that that is really her intent, um, clearly. And yet, that is often how it is taught, and certainly how it gets interpreted and received. Um, that you know, EMDR is this amazing modality, and the therapist needs to stay out of the way and trust the process, and that's it. <laughs> and just do EMDR. Yeah. And just do EMDR. Right? There's nothing, nothing else. Um, which clearly we don't believe. But I think the point is, is that I don't think she believed that either. Yeah. Like it is in here that she said, please bend, please modify, please adapt, get consultation on how to do those things. Yeah. yeah. And the, you know, the challenge is being balancing that with the second part of the paragraph that is all about yes. 
in all of these, with all of these limitations, like this is going to narrow down to where you can apply this. That doesn't leave a lot of room for a need for flexibility and creativity and uh, being interactive in it. Mm -hmm. I think though the first sentence becomes the most relevant in the cases that are outliers to those rules. Like it's, it's in those cases that don't fit in the criteria of what's the ideal participant that we need to become even more interactive mm-hmm. in the process. Mm-hmm. We need to I become even more flexible. With that, your use of the word outlier there puts the finger on the sore spot, which is that, well, actually the simple cases are the outliers. Mm. Of reality. Yeah. Of reality. Yeah. Like that's the felt experience of the therapist is that, well, perhaps in the original description of the modality, the outliers were the complex cases. But if right. you've done this and for any amount of time, I think it's very validating for me that, oh my gosh, far and away, the simple cases, the truly simple ones where it's not stuff hiding under rocks, like those are by far the, the minority and, and the mm-hmm. true outliers in a normed mm-hmm. um, data distribution. Yeah. I agree. The, you know, she gives this list you know, starting on 98 and into 99 of these different, you know, steps or elements of treatment planning and symptom focused treatment planning. (laughs) Yes. So yeah, that's yes. A good way of saying it. In fact, number one is symptoms, right? (laughs) (laughs) Um, But you know, there, there's a sentence here at the beginning of the fourth step where we're looking for additional past occurrences that might somehow be connected. And she says, what other incidents have been instrumental in influencing or reinforcing the pathology? What other significant variables exist? Who are the major participants? And that suggests that we as clinicians have some way of organizing and determining what all of those things might be that are connected. And the one word that I would kind of take great exception to there is reinforcing the pathology. Yeah, Because I think that one of the things that has actually made our job more difficult is that we were taught, most of us, that we were tracking pathology when actually we're tracking survival. And it really like produces a different way of determining like what are their past experiences might be relevant, might be really useful targets. Um, when we really conceptualize that we're tracking our client's path to survival rather than what made this pathology. I think it creates a really different feeling. Totally. It's yeah. I, I just to add what I feel like is already in parentheses there is that it is their strategy for survival mm-hmm. and the challenge that they're now experiencing to that strategy, mm-hmm. you know, like the car accident example I gave for me, that's a real life one where somebody came in thinking, I just need to process this whiplash. I've got six sessions paid for by my insurance and I'm so bothered I can't get in my car. Well, what we uncovered was that she did something wrong mm-hmm. and therefore she couldn't make another movement forward with anything. She couldn't ex- she couldn't do anything else because what if mm-hmm. I'm wrong again and I die or I kill somebody else no, or no. and that goes all the way back to childhood. Um, for her of being told that you need to be the one in charge. You need to be the one in control. Well, and, and Bridger, that's such a good example because, you know, looking at the number four there, the way that we ask those questions is just imperative. Yeah. Because there could be a temptation to say, well, have you ever been in another car wreck? Right. And we're going to process car wrecks. But in your example, the more relevant question becomes something like, when may you have learned that? your failures are dangerous. Yes. When yes. may you have learned that you can't trust yourself or that you have to stay in perfect control or else, right? That and was that, the point of invalidation for herself of never having had another ticket before. Like yeah. any like not even you know nothing bad. Mm-hmm. And she was so frustrated with herself, she kept like the negative cognitions of like I'm weak. Like, mm-hmm. this is dumb. I shouldn't mm-hmm. be this bothered by it. All of that was coming up right. and no other history of car-related trauma. And I've mm-hmm. heard clinicians talk about, like, going back to target is deeper than just in your in your desensitization phase. Like, if we're going to do a symptom-focused treatment approach, 
we need to be specific to the type of trauma that was experienced. So almost like guarding from these things that might seep over. And I've heard rationalizations of like, well, that's a different memory network. Let's be specific on this one. Cause once we clear this one, it'll be easier to go to the next one. Mm-hmm. But that's, that takes so much control, <laughs> like mm-hmm. not in a good way. Um, in my experience, like, or in my perspective, um, the reason she showed up to my office, I believe is because she was experiencing a existential crisis in her favorite strategy. Right. Well, in what you said earlier about this is why we have to really understand the client's goal matters. Yeah. Because if their expressed goal is only, I have six sessions and I need to be able to drive, then, okay, we can do that. Yeah. But then we can also help the client give actual consent to what that might mean, which is the dissociation of all of that other material that is connected, right? Yeah. That there, there is a potential that we double down on a suppression and repression strategy that was you know, built from other experiences that is being activated because of this recent experience. And like, personally, I have a hard time not feeling like it's our job to help our clients see that connection and give them the choice about whether they follow it or not. Yeah. I saw her for six sessions. She took a couple months off and then I've seen her for a year and some months (laughs) after she came back. Yeah. To kind of just like summarize this case in the treatment planning options that are here, there is the more symptom focused reduction approach that says it is the only single incident. We may even know what it ties into, but the goal in that then is to say this one incident does not negate the effectiveness of your strategy and your ability to continue to utilize it successfully. Your strategy of being controlled, on target, perfect, high functioning, whatever you would summarize your strategy to be. Like that doesn't negate all of the truth of that. And we're just desensitizing the power of that one experience that's feeling overwhelming in her system. Mm-hmm. The more deeper trait change work that's a longer term treatment goal is why has that strategy felt so critical for survival in your life in the first mm-hmm. place? Mm-hmm. And what would it be like to live a life where you didn't have to have that strategy so rigidly in place in order to feel worthy? safe, acceptable in your world. Mm -hmm. That's a whole different ballgame of work. And we have to be able to see those differences and then determine with our clients what is the best approach. Mm -hmm. The second option is not always the right option Mm -hmm. for every client. That can open up so much and maybe they're not ready for that or don't have, you know, the current environment to do that. When we started working after she came back, her fears about driving did bubble back up because we started to to pull the sheets back a little bit on this idea that maybe being in control is not the goal. Like maybe understanding attunement and safety and advocating for yourself is, well, that means I'm going to have to trust other people. <laughs> oh no, like that's, I can't do Terrible that. Terrible idea. <laughs> can't do that. Um and in that first six weeks of work that we got to do, her resource was, I'm a proactive and defensive driver. I'm a proactive and a defensive driver. Mm, like I, brilliant. Yeah, yeah, like work, like bad things can happen out there, but I'm going to be proactive. I'm going to look for it. Like just fueling hypervigilance, mm-hmm. sympathetic yes. activation. But it, yeah. it colluded with her favorite strategy of, yeah. I'm in control. I actually can keep bad things from happening this is how I'm going to protect myself going forward. Well, when we started dipping over into the more regional systemic treatment plans and going into the characterological trait change, we directly ran up against that in now a barrier to her, her growth. So she had to find a new relationship with that. But if we start there before our clients can even get in the car to drive to work, that's like blowing up, blowing them up. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, exactly. Too too much. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, you know, as as we've been, you know, writing our basic training, I've really enjoyed having that language of that spectrum of treatment mm-hmm. planning mm-hmm. and, you know, sort of imagining that precision of the microscope and then all the way to the vastness of the telescope and that our treatment plans can be anywhere on that spectrum. Um, and I think that 
you know, determining how broad do we go is one of the spots where I find it near impossible to know that at the beginning. Yeah. Like that, that is the part where the suggestion that we should have this like fully formed history taking and treatment plan just feels, um, I mean, near impossible and also quite constraining. And I would much rather, you know, have an honest conversation with a client about, you know, here's the amount that we're going to begin with. And there might be we have discussions about whether we, we only do this or whether we um, go broader, mm-hmm. if, if that is what your desire is at that point. You know, the, the last um, element that she talks about with treatment planning is asking the client about what their future desired state is. And it feels like most people, including myself, would have no idea how to honestly, authentically answer that before things begin to resolve. Like, it's sort of like asking the positive cognition before we've resolved anything. It's probably going to change. Like, we oh, don't get sure. attached sure. to it, right? Yeah. And, and it feels very similar to me of like asking a client, what's your desired state? How do you want to feel in the future? We might get a vague answer, like more peaceful. I don't know. But like, you know, how could your client at that point know how to say, I want to feel like I can safe, be safe in a world that I know I can't perfectly control. I mean, who, who can say that? at the I beginning? want to be able to trust people. Yeah. Like, you know, I mean, that, that's just like, so out of the realm of awareness before we really begin a healing journey. And I think that's one of the virals that we do with clients is kind of coming back to that question around what is the desired state? Like, what am I really seeking? What am I craving and hungry for and feeling like I'm missing? Because as we heal, we get clearer and clearer about what that desire is. And we can't know. at the Yeah. Beginning. I mean that, that, Oh, sorry, Jen. Well, you go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say the, <clears throat> The desired state is such an abstract idea to a body that doesn't know it yet, um, right. you know, in the way that you're talking about it. Because for her, she did have some uh, car experiences, but it was, well, dad was an alcoholic and me and my siblings would be like in the car with him. And mm-hmm. so I knew that I didn't want to be in that level of danger, but it wasn't her. So she felt confused as to why that was coming in. And it wasn't the car that was the connection. It was the trust of people, and but she control, couldn't, she couldn't control. see that. Yeah. yeah. She couldn't see that. So the desired state that I don't think that would have registered at all. If I would have asked her that at the beginning of like, how would you like to feel? Not like think, but actually feel <laughs> like, I don't think she would have been like, I want to be able to trust people, especially those intimate to me. <laughs> yeah. Where I yeah. think it's similar to the positive cognition, like the most useful part of it is it does let you know how far their system can see. Mm-hmm. So it's really with true. that client imagining asking her, she may say like, I want to be able to drive and not feel terrified. Like I want to be able to go back to driving anywhere I want to go with ease. Like that's a desired state that's going to let us know that is the extent of yeah. what her system has the capacity to see as of right now. And we don't want to go so far past that until they're able to join us in seeing mm-hmm. what that could be. Mm-hmm. Like yeah, if she, that's her desired state and we leap into, I want you to trust people, especially those close to you. Like that is not going to be something her system can join you in and register. Yeah. Especially at that beginning, I remember so clearly the, the reason it was disturbing to her, I think most of all was how dependent she was forced to be on other people because of it. Like my husband has to drive me to work and like, that's so embarrassing. And I have to like tell my coworkers like, you know, Oh, sweet husband, like this whole story about it, like I'm just not ready to drive yet. But under that was like deep shame for herself of being so dependent and weak, quote unquote. Um, as she would say, like, I just, I hate how much of a mess I am. Um, like that was almost like the ruminating Right. pain of the situation. It wasn't that she could physically die. That wasn't yeah. really the the concern under the surface. It was, I hate how much of a problem I am for other people because of this. Well, and I feel like that's such a window into the deepest bit of that experience was once again, she is out of control of herself, right? That she's feeling like a burden, feeling weak, feeling like she has to depend. Like it's all hitting on that same theme, which I think is what happens a lot of the time is that we 
start with this one little thread of, okay, I had a bad car wreck, but when we're open to this perpetual history taking and this evolving treatment plan, we can refine and clarify so much uh, as we go through that process and really find like, what is the actual core here? Because we rarely know at the beginning. They rarely know at the beginning. Every once in a while, sure. But to, to begin knowing that we have enough information and that we're going to be open to that evolving and clarifying as we go, I find so much more value in that because we can get into the deeper work faster that way, um, but also be safe. Jen, what's coming up for you? I just... I feel like with every time we go through this material, I have this interesting process of uh, initially in a space of critique <laughs> and like uh, certain things that I um, just feel like resistant or critical of. And then following that is more of the like respect for what it really is saying and realizing how much of it has gotten twisted and misunderstood and misrepresented through the many, many iterations of people trying to understand it and integrate it. Mm -hmm. um, and so, simplify it. Yes. Right. Yes. There, there's such this urge towards simplicity and need packaging. Yeah. And it keeps bringing me, I think our process of writing the basic training mm -hmm. again is like, just keeps humbling my experience of like there's there is so much and so much nuance and so many complicated detailed pieces and we're only going to have five days to say it yes. yeah like we had to talk about having soapbox moments nothing? how many yes. like what's our allowance for yeah. <laughs> getting yeah. off track in a rabbit hole somewhere what did we decide by the way did we decide each no, of this we're not having day. this conversation right now. No. <laughs> i want to have this conversation i need to be prepared but like, the, I the circle like of the conversation was that one felt so arbitrary that there's no way we could possibly stick to it. But we, that we do have to have some kind of limit. Otherwise a five day training is going to be a 10 day training. Yeah. Like saying. how many times are we going to say, I know this isn't on the slide, but, just but I just got to add this like really quick. Gonna say it. No, no, we can't do that. But I, I think the point in all of that being, there's just so much to say and you have to come like, you have to boil it down at some point and give right. guidance, direction, structure, Tangible, foundation. Yeah. Yes. Well, and my hope is that our, and, and this might be uh, a little pie in the sky now that I'm saying it out loud, but my, my hope is that there is an evolution happening for clinicians where we're going to learn to tolerate um, a process of slow mastery more than this idea that I go through a master's program and now I know everything I need to know, or I go through a five-day training and now I'm like ready to do everything right. That the the culture of certification, meaning competence and confidence, maybe is starting to soften a little mm -hmm. bit. And really, you know, Bridger, you and I kind of talked about that dream of the healer's guild where there's this um, allowance and encouragement for ongoing mastery that the flexibility and sensitivity that Shapiro is talking about. It's something that is slowly developed over time. Um, but also that we can be comfortable in what we don't know yet and what we don't know how to do yet, as long as that is supported. And uh, we have places where that growth can happen. Um, we don't have to beat ourselves up for what we don't know yet. And that would translate into supervisors, consultants, and trainers yes. being comfortable with people yeah. also not knowing at all at one time yes and also <laughs> us being comfortable presenting a product like a training and being really honest and humble about what they're going to be ready to do when they leave and what is still required are we talking to ourselves right now just a little bit <laughs> okay maybe it's <laughs> <laughs> just a little window in as melissa and jen process the challenges the subjective challenges of writing our basic training and all of our previous idealism that is really being... this podcast is just our own therapy like well, i don't know if I don't, anyone I, else has noticed <laughs> i think everybody is well aware of that that they they get to uh listen to our healing hear. yes yeah i mean over a hundred episodes i think it's pretty apparent like this is... <laughs> what are we up to 
our own stuff. <laughs> Processing life and trying our best. Like <laughs> and hopefully encouraging other people to, you know, be gentle with themselves in this yeah. work. <laughs> yeah. Gentle and excellent. What attention we try to hold. Amen. <laughs> I did actually just put in an email today to a consultee at Bridger. I think I CC'd you on it. Um, it was like, the good news is that our personal and professional development gets to happen throughout our entire life. So no rush. That's right. <laughs> someone who wanted no to rush. take everything all at <laughs> one time was like, I don't think I can do it. I'm like, yeah. well, there's good news in this. It'll, it'll you have your whole life. It'll still be here. And we'll still be here. We're not going yeah. anywhere. Nope. We'll, we'll, you know, maybe we won't write as many trainings in the future. Like maybe we'll slow down a little bit. But <laughs> Well, there'll always be something. And like, I'm ending a, a group right now um, that is always, I don't know, it's a weird feeling for me because there's this feeling of end. Mm -hmm. And it's natural, I think, to feel that almost the way consultees talk about it is like that bittersweet sense of, yeah. well, it's over, but then is it? I don't know. Mm -hmm. And yeah, where will we go from here? Well, and that, I mean, this might get annoying, but like I really am enamored of that idea of like learning communities where it's just sort of the thing that we're always doing. And then we ebb and flow out of seasons of intensity. I think that's why, you know, I can't really get away from academia because I enjoy the ebb and flow of it. You know, the season of new and exciting and the season of, oh my gosh, I'm reading and writing and that's all I'm doing in life. And then have a break and start over again. And I think that um, for those of us that have been in school a long time, like maybe that process is always there, even when we're not doing it formally. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, Going anything else? Maybe, yeah, maybe spend a little bit of time talking about what treatment planning looks like for us, um, practically. Sorry, that made me giggle. <laughs> I was going to say this and then lost track of it. And then it just popped back up there. The top 10 list is mentioned in this section. Oh, uh -huh. um, where? Well, it is under additional past occurrences. Um, clients can be asked to identify their 10 most disturbing memories. This is one of those moments where I see that I get that critical, like, ah, this is like, this is why we have so many problems feeling. <laughs> <laughs> well, so don't just say that and like and leave then, it and say a lot more. <laughs> yes. But, but then it goes on to like say so much more that I'm like, you know what, Shapiro, you're right in all of this. Um, it's presented in the text as like, that's an option mm -hmm. as a way to get an idea of the general schemas that we're working on. She does not use that language, mm -hmm. but like, what are the, the categories of cognition, negative cognition that we might be trying to address. She presents it as a, a general uh, scope of treatment planning approach. What are those top things that are like lingering for you that could help us get a picture? The way that's been translated is like, that's the list of things we target. Let's work through them one at a time. I was going to say that, that, that may be so that in the, in the way we're working through our own sense of criticism and then compassion that might be so, but why is it that I hear consultees telling me that they have a worksheet that says top 10 and they send their client home with it after the first session and that they come cool. back and that's where they start. Like that's where that lost oh, in translation. Yeah. yeah. Yes. That's how a trainer translated it. And so that how, it, that's how it gets taught. And then it's confusing because you find evidence of it in her text without the wider contextual awareness of, it. you know, the, the top 10 list was not an EMDR thing or a Shapiro thing first. I think it's included right. because it's a thing that was already happening. Yeah. And it was a way of connecting to, you know, other modalities. And yeah, prolonged exposure uses a very yeah, that, similar. Yeah, that's right. That, that, you know, she was referencing in all of this. And, you know, I think that, that, that translation process, um, and it's, it's just such a good example of like the responsibility of academia and how, <laughs> how we have to be so considerate of why things are written the way they are. And yeah. Uh, yeah. 
That was just a little side note, but back to your question of how do we treat this plan? Well, I think that's <laughs> a good like top ten list. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say that. I think that's a good like jumping off point because it's not that for us. And yeah, if it is for you, like listening to this, please don't feel. I don't want you to feel shame or anything like that. No, like if no. if it works for you, yeah. If if it works for you and your process, to me, you're you're doing you're doing the work of sensitizing and you know individualizing it to your clients. So I think for me, what I want or what I feel kind of interested in talking about with the three of us is, given the complexity that we are aware each moment could carry. That being somebody comes in left-brained saying, I know it's about this and that's what I want to work on versus somebody saying, I don't know really why I'm feeling the way that I am, but I just am. Mm -hmm. EMDR for us can be an application for all of the above and more. Um, mm -hmm. And how does that really work? Like, what does that really look like? Because I don't have worksheets that I'm filling out. I don't have like any sense of, well, there has to be some magical hierarchy that we go through. Or even the idea of a touchstone memory is, it, it's not Arbitrary. as confident or concrete as it is presented. Um, one, that's yeah, by nature of how know. memory really works. But I think it's a useful idea if it's contextualized in like Jen, the posture that I hear you speaking with which is that, yeah, it's evident in reading Shapiro in full that these things are just intended to get at more, to get at more, not stop and put in a box and check off. Yeah, this isn't a list that we work through from start to finish. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I mean, that question of like, how do we treatment plan? Um, I mean, the reason why I initially giggled is because I'm not sure I do anything recognizable as a treatment plan other than I have the same one for every human, which <laughs> yeah. is, you know, activate and see what happens next, which I know is really not practical and helpful. Um, <laughs> but it is true. Like, it, it is just true that the only thing that I really feel like we need most of the time is to know how to track activation and what's happening in front of us. And when we do, we can follow that around. Um, but that is a really great example of, you know, over a decade worth of sensitivity training by just doing the work. Right. And so, you know, for somebody that's been doing it for a lot of years, yeah, that's going to make sense. But when you're brand new and your, you know, hardware in the form of your own body is not yet tuned in that way, we have to have something that is more black and white. To begin with and through that more black and white structured treatment planning process can we be open to a more embodied sensitivity so that we can let go of that precise structure and move into something that's more like organic inquiry hmm. um, yeah. jen how about for you yeah i think hearing all of that um feels real and accurate, but also I have this like fear of the discouragement over or overwhelmed the listeners of like, but I don't know how to do that. Like mm -hmm. how, how do I even get from where I am to that? Mm -hmm. um, and I think tools or formalized treatment plans or however, it's about finding a way of organizing it for you and your client in particular organizing it in a meaningful and intentional way so that you can make decisions about the therapy process as we go, that it doesn't just feel like it's like happening to us, but that we're really like active participants in deciding and maintaining the safety and regulation for the client. Mm. And so for me, treatment planning can take on a few different forms as far as is what is coming like what's requiring the energy in the room about the past. And we're just going to go ahead and give a heavy focus on the past. I have different tools I will use there versus like what's demanding the energy is like the present. Mm -hmm. um, it's like my interactions in the present, my relationship in the present, how I'm showing up right now. And to me, that is where I'm going to work as an avenue or a channel into accessing past healing. Mm -hmm. And I think the door that, I think of it as like the door I'm going in through um, is going to determine 
my treatment plan, but it's all still focused to get to the same place. And mm-hmm. even with the future, sometimes it's the future that brings them in. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I um, I know this thing is coming up and I'm going to have a baby and I'm terrified of what that means to be a mom. And so it's, we're accessing through all these different points and that will start to like allow us to plan from how are we going to find what's at the root of this and what's our approach right. in working with it. Yeah, Bridger, I, I want to ask a question to answer after you give your answer to how do you treatment plan, but I can hear a question being asked of, um, but how do you make sure that you're not just doing a bunch of random distressing things? Like how do you make it actually cohesive and feel like it's all kind of working together towards the deeper goal? Um, like I think that we should say a little bit each maybe about how we do that, like really find cohesive cohesivity in this uh, more organic way of treatment planning. Well, I think mine, mine is so influenced by psychodynamic um, training as well. Like for me, I have a consistent kind of mantra within myself of like, what's coming up for you and why is that a problem? Or what does that mean to you? Um, Whatever it might be. Truly, um, that's where we can have a really broad conversation about that or a super, super micro um, conversation about that. But that is more more structure for me than a list of memories. Um, and again, that's because of my philosophy on memory and from <laughs> just understanding what memory is neurobiologically, ordering them like that and trusting that order to have meaning in their overall healing process is interesting to me. Um, But for a relationship to be formed around, you know, what is coming up in your life that is bringing distress or challenge or barrier to authentic self-expression and why is that a problem? Um, It might seem apparent on the surface, like with the car accident, well, I can't drive my car. Yeah. But why is that a problem? Um, really getting at the meaning that something like that really represents for that individual, that's where I want to simultaneously, in a way, illuminate for them that this is much deeper <laughs> than we thought. And we can then hopefully take off some of the burden from the anxiety that I feel driving a car and just know that this is okay. This is just one moment where a larger fear is making itself known and we can greet that fear we can we can acknowledge it and build within us a resilience and and empowerment to get back in the car and in six sessions in four sessions we were able to do that even after the first one she was able to at least get back in the car but not drive it yet um but there was so much work that could be done while naming very transparently that i think this goes deeper than just the vehicle. And I have my way of introducing that therapeutically by saying like, you know, you're going to become annoyed at the, <laughs> annoyed with me by the end of this relationship, by how I'm always kind of looking for what's underneath it. Um, but that's just part of my, part of me, part of my bias is that I think there's always more to the story than might seem evident to us at the time. Um, so what's coming up for you and why is that really a problem for you? Um, is more of the general structure that I have and memories will come up, stories will come up, people will come up of where did you learn that and whose voice is that, or where did you learn to first encounter that as a challenge or barrier or problem? Um, those are natural ways of uncovering the origin story of that strategy and its current challenge. Um, but I'm not, I'm not assuming they already have that formulated in their mind that they could put on a top 10 most distressing list. Yeah. You know, you said another phrase that I think kind of also tips your hand as far as a bias that you hold around maybe the universal treatment plan, which is faith and authentic expression of self. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I know that that's something that all three of us share and maybe there is that foundation that makes it possible for us to be more organic about treatment planning because 
we do kind of rest on that foundation of the goal is the same for everybody, like safety and connection with self and other, like what else are we doing? Yeah. You know, are we helping people drive? Sure. But why? Right. And that's your point, Bridget, of like, why does that matter? It matters because of that, you know, safety and connection with self and other, like, yeah. um, Another example that was coming up while I was talking was this, um, um, sexual dysfunction case that I was having, um, where it, was so frustrating for the couple because they couldn't have intercourse and there was just shame going around and around and around of whose fault it was. And it was so focused on the moment, but that's so little to do with the problem. Like that presentation really is another candidate for me of where this type of work can be so powerful. Uh It's not about the moment. (laughs) Like I know it feels like it is and it's almost demanding to be seen that way, but there's a reason why it doesn't feel safe for the body to do what it was naturally built to do. When I talk that way, I could be talking about any number of presentations, all of them theoretically, but that is, yeah, I feel very validated by that, um, that synopsis that really I'm going for safety and authentic Uh self-expression. That case example just illuminates similar to what I said with the other case of like, even within that there's multiple layers of treatment planning and i think emdr's best way of capturing that is the state change trait change language yeah but it's not we say it like state change versus trait change it's it's all of it and it's about the order and and how we go about approaching that Mm -hmm. um so and it's you know with that couple or with the car accident like is there work that has to be done on a state change to give us access to the deeper trait change um, for there to be enough safety for it to be safe enough to even do that deeper work? Yeah. That's going to set yeah. forth a, f- a phase one of, of the treatment planning might be this. And then once safe enough is established through some of that state change work, what does that lead into then phase two? And how do we go even deeper into those pieces? Um, I think that really shines nicely on um, in the text, their talk of like three prong protocol mm-hmm. where we're looking at past, present, future, but there's so much more depth to what that really means. Mm-hmm. Like in the present, that's this person needs to be able to get in the car, drive to work, uh, to feel safe in the world that she can rely on herself and not have to be dependent on other people. And until she feels safe enough in that space, we're not going to be able to get into the deep past of like, why is this self-reliancy such an important thing for her in the first place? Yeah. Um, so we, we can really work recognizing there's treatment planning for the present, there's treatment planning for the past, there's treatment planning for the future, and it's about yeah. how are we going to approach that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I yeah, find my... it so helpful to have that kind of... Um, I don't want to say universal in the sense that there's not a lot of diversity, but it does feel somewhat universal that like everybody is kind of up to the same thing in therapy at the very bottom of it all. And that feels very grounding and focusing, but in a way that still invites a lot of creativity and sensitivity to the moment. Like I don't feel trapped at all by that. My mind is now swirling with that case. (laughs) Um, I feel like there's so much, which comes back to my first point of like, how how is there only two or three pages on this? But (laughs) so much to all of it. Um, And just a, a respect for how nuanced this, the process of treatment planning can be. And how how much development for us as humans has to take place for us to really find like what is our our way of effectively doing that. Um, and we can yeah. put there be a lot of iterations of that. To start with a a worksheet that walks you through is not a wrong way of treatment planning. No. That's no indication of skill level or ability. It's if this is what works for me right now and that that will evolve at some point then you may find a new way and that that's okay to let that happen Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah you're going to find things that 
you know, as you develop, you will find things that are helpful to you in this process. Trends, patterns, often connection, um, you know, just similarities that that can be useful in turning over rocks that maybe the client didn't know were there. But also, I think giving yourself permission to be more focused if it needs to be. Um, that was a big thing for me early on was I just felt like every case needed to be trait change and just being so impatient with this demand for the present to be more filled with relief. Um, it's like, it, it, I don't want to sell you temporary relief. I don't care about that, but that really, you don't leaves, need a bandaid. You need surgery. That's right. Keep like I, down. how many more band-aids you want? Yeah. Um, but that there's real purpose to, the patience of state change work. Yes. And that especially for me, if it's explicit with the client, I feel so much better doing yeah. state change work, knowing that there's many roots. The reason this bothers you is not in the present. Uh -huh. um, it's deeper than that. And if, and when you feel ready to work on that, like keep my card. Yep. And if we do enough of it with that explicit, like acknowledgement, it turns into the trait change. Yes. Because you're creating the shift in the, the change in the present moment while helping them see the connection to the past. Like it will become that. Yeah. Focus right. attention carries us right to where it needs okay. to. Yeah. I think one of the things that um, like feels so correct about allowing that process to unfold organically is then it's the client's own body that is showing them that the past matters. And it's also the client's body that is learning that change is possible. Right. And so if by doing, you know, maybe even months worth of state change work in some of those um, more acute and focused targets, if, if we actually view that as a uh, way of using phase four as preparation and also as a organic history taking process, then oftentimes the client will see all of that information and have all of that resourcing and actually be well prepared to move into the deeper work. But it wasn't that we had to psychoeducate them into agreeing to it. It's that no. their own lived experience actually showed them how it's all connected and why it mattered, which feels so yeah. much more awesome. The sexual dysfunction case I was talking about is a great example. Very like unique and rare in my experience where they both had been diagnosed with their own sexual dysfunction by their primary physician, vaginismus and erectile dysfunction. Mm -hmm. And the cognition that was under that for both of like for her, it was I'm being taken from. Uh -huh. And for him, it was I'm not enough. And you could see how those two things just become just, I mean, they're just devastating pairing. Mm -hmm. um, but and there's no confirming each other. Exactly. And how the psychoeducation in that moment is like, okay, like, okay, you know, here's what's going on physiologically. Yeah, we know we're experiencing it every day. <laughs> like, yeah. yeah, all right. But just feeling held and embraced in that knowing of you're not broken, your body's telling us a story. Are we patient enough and safe enough to listen to it and, and to really feel it? Maybe. Mm -hmm. Right. Complete in the conversation. Reasonably for now. Yeah. Really, yeah, I know. It's an ongoing one. Yeah. Well, I mean, okay, so because we must, we'll share some things that we want to invite you guys to um, in the form of ads that we're always uncomfortable doing, and yet <laughs> it's part of our job. Um, but there, there are a couple of things that I think are very relevant to what we're talking about. Um, one is SIP, which we you know talk about all the time, but I think a huge part of why SIP was born was out of this constant need to have a more uh, robust and organic um, conceptualization foundation to do this work from. And, uh, you know, SIP is the way that we have developed to do that together. And uh, if this is an area that you know, you feel like you didn't really get the support that you needed to know how to think this way. Like that's our offering that really kind of fills that gap. We should have um, up on the website, the next offerings for SIP posted. Mm -hmm. 
have for 2024. We don't have any more offerings for this year, but we will have four different trainings, virtual and in-person mm-hmm. um, listed on the site. I think the next one's February. February. All right. Yeah. Yeah. I think you guys and Caleb are teaching mm-hmm. in February and then three months later we have another one. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Oh, heck yeah. I, I, yeah, I know. And I forgot another one that I wanted to invite everybody to. So um, one of the big challenges that we're all aware of around, you know, getting into the depths of things are clients that have a lot of association that can serve as a incredible strategy and barrier to the process. And so we have a, a six month class and cohort that um, goes through. Well, I will say the phenomenology, but that's just the big fancy words. That means like, how does dissociation actually feel? How does it show up in session? And this is really the class where we kind of get into the what do we do, right? So this is sort of the SIP version of ego state work. Um, This is where we get into that in the uh, very practical application. There's a lot of room for talking about your own cases. Um, So if you're interested in that, that course is called Treating the Dissociative Spectrum. And it's up on the website. The start date for that monthly class is December the 12th. Hmm. All right. Well, thank you guys so much for listening. Yeah. Next episode, we're going to get into chapter five, phase yeah. two we're, and We're three. making progress. Look at that. We're I on know. Page 113. That's amazing. Yeah, that is great. I'm so proud of us. Yeah. <laughs> but thank you all for listening, and um, we hope to see you around. We hope that you have enjoyed this podcast episode and that it will help you help your clients in the process of EMDR therapy. If you are curious to learn more about something that you've heard today, check out our website at www.beyondhealingcenter.com and go to the trainings tab for more information on our upcoming EMDR and case conceptualization trainings. You can also contact us by emailing trainings at beyondhealingcenter.com. If you want to stay connected, please subscribe to this podcast for more episodes, leave us a review, and follow us on social media by searching Notice That Podcast.